Jesus, it is indeed an amazing love. An amazing love from your Father, who loves us. An amazing love from you, who died for us. And an amazing love from the Holy Spirit, who resides within us. I thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but that you are with us, that you make your home within us. That home is one of fellowship, fellowship with the living God of this universe. The body of Christ, the church, Father, I lay this church in your hands. I ask that you would do with it as you please. And as you've called me here, I pray that you would use me to encourage and build up this local church. And Lord, that you would be so pleased to dwell here and your presence would be felt in a real and tangible way and that lives would be transformed, that the kingdom of darkness would be pushed back and that your kingdom would advance as we wait for the return of our Savior. Please use me as your mouthpiece. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin by talking about how, is this not on? I guess, if, is it on up there? That's all that matters. Okay. Um, how naive I am. <laughs> I was talking to Don Teodoro this week. He was doing some work at the church. And he was like, you're going to go over this in the book of Acts? And I said, I'm going to try and get two chapters done. And <laughs> I planned that I'd have two chapters done, and just how naive I was, because there was just way too much information. It would be hooking your mouth up to a, a fire hydrant and just opening and turning it on, you know what I mean? It would just be, be overwhelmed. So we're just going to look at Acts chapter 6. It's a short chapter, but it sets up uh, next week's sermon in Acts chapter 7, which is the, the sermon of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, 15 verses. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, that's where we get Parmesan cheese from, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. I was making sure you're following me. 
these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and some of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia and Enumclaw rose up and disputed with Stephen. I got you there, Ron. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. There's a reason for that, and you'll know it at the end of the sermon. Okay, in Acts chapter 2, what happens? Well, the Holy Spirit fell upon the Christians for the purpose of empowering them to be witnesses, and they would witness with supernatural power about Jesus Christ. The result was that thousands came to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, in that crowd... That day and the days that followed were hundreds of thousands of Jews celebrating the Feast of Passover. And that's one of the feasts that the law required attendance in Jerusalem. Now the pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem from other lands and were converted, they became Christians, a good number of them did not go back because there was no church. So many of them stayed in Jerusalem, and this posed a challenge for the early church. Who was going to support these people? Where were their jobs? Where were their possessions? They're in foreign countries. And to further complicate matters, in the founding of the church, of course, it would be true here in Jerusalem as it was through the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church that God had chosen who to save. It's not many mighty people, not many noble people. So generally speaking, it was the poor of the world who were desperate enough to recognize how spiritually bankrupt they were before God. But guess what? They're the ones who came to faith in Christ. But they were poor. They needed resources. And so those who had would be willing to sell what they had to meet the the needs of those who didn't have. You with me so far? I'm setting up some context here. And Acts chapter 6 begins, kind of unfortunately, with another attack by Satan. And I'll remind you that Satan has already attacked the church in a couple of ways. He attacked the church from the outside using what tactic? Persecution. Acts chapter 4. He then switched strategy when he was defeated and attacks the church from within using individual sin. That was the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They lied about 
the amount of money that they gave to the church. Now, seeing no fruit from his efforts, Satan once again switches his tactics, and he attacks the church from within using dissension. Can you relate to that? I hope not. So let's talk about the tactic. That's the first point. Again, some historical context here for you. There were two kinds of Jews in the early church. There were the native-born Palestinian Jews, as your text says. They were called Hebrews, as the word is in your text. And there were Greek-speaking Jews that were called Hellenists. So when you see the word Hellenist, think of a Greek-speaking Jew. And when you see the word Hebrew, it's a, a Palestine-born or more of a local or native Jew. But the Greek-speaking Jew, the Hellenists, they were Jews who lived outside of Israel. They lived in Asia Minor, North Africa, and so on. And they had moved out, some of them three or four generations from living in Palestine, but they had maintained a Jewish heritage. And they always came back to Jerusalem for the required feasts, which include Passover and, in this case, Pentecost as well. Many of them were saved at Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2. So from the beginning, the church is made up of Jews from Israel and Jews from outside of Israel. You follow me so far? Good. Now, all of this is happening, of course, according to God's plan as the church was first to witness in Jerusalem. You remember this? They received the power of the Holy Spirit fell upon them to be witnesses where, first of all? In Jerusalem. That's exactly what happened. God's plan of redemption is playing itself out according to his plan. Now, let me get back to the dissension in the church. I guess you could suppose that it was only natural that there would be an immediate separation, I'll use that word, of the two sets of Jews I just mentioned. Jews from the outside who spoke Greek and Jews from Israel who spoke Aramaic. And it makes logical sense that the result would be they would tend to assemble themselves into language groups, right? Where they could communicate. But there was something else. The Hebrew Jews, the native Jews, they looked down somewhat on the Greek-speaking Jews because they felt they had probably been polluted by the pagan culture and therefore they concluded they really weren't true Jews because they weren't loyal to the land. Now that, folks, is a perfect recipe for sin and for a problem and for Satan. So the result was there was some friction between the Hellenist Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews, and the Hellenist Jews had a complaint. They thought that in the dispensing of the food and the money to the widows, the Greek-speaking Jews were being shortchanged. With me so far? Let me explain what's going on even further. Just so you know this, FYI, the care of the poor and the widows was always a part of Jewish custom. In fact, in the synagogue, there was a routine procedure where officials known as receivers of alms, I found this interesting, they were sent out every Friday morning, and they mingled throughout the marketplace, and they went from house to house, and they collected an offering. That offering was passed out to the poor and the widows later in that same day. So if somebody was temporarily uh, in poverty, 
they received enough to tide them over. If somebody was a permanent case of poverty, they received enough for 14 meals, which meant two meals a day for seven days. And the next Friday, they would show up, and they'd come back again, and this is what the routine was. But I want you to understand that that was a common custom back then, for the Jews to care for the poor, the needy, and the widows. Now, this issue is brought up because it threatened the early church. And quite frankly, it still threatens the church to this day. What I'm talking about is just dissension within the church. How does dissension in the church, in other words, it's when you don't get along with each other. How does that cripple, and it does cripple, the ministry of the church? Well, I can tell you from experience the amount of effort and time and resources I have spent in dealing with internal issues in the church is sobering. Now, Satan's strategy with this type of attack is this. Get the church so busy fighting within itself that its message is lost in hypocrisy and its energy is depleted in internal struggle. Every time I've had to deal with an issue wherever I've served in the church, it is a massive energy drain upon me. And my time is taken away from sermon preparation or some other service in dealing with these problems. Dissension in the church. Now, with... Well, let's do a little check here. By a show of hands, how many churches have you known or been a part of that there was a lot of dissension or fighting? Show of hands. Higher, so everyone can say, take a look around, just to get an idea. I know of one here in Auburn that I've mentioned before. They're fighting with each other. Now, with the church in this time in the book of Acts, it has grown rapidly. You're talking twenty to 30,000 people. And so this was not something that the apostles could deal with. So like any good leader, they delegate this responsibility to a qualified few to address this need. So I want to take a moment and talk about these men, and particularly one man, or the man, let's say this up here, Stephen. Look at verse 3. Some quick characteristics of Stephen. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Verse 5. But they said, please the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, the church is only months old. It's not even a year old. And yet... Stephen has so separated himself from the twenty to 30,000 people. He's one of only seven. And if they're saying a lot about this man. I mean, three verses out of eight, they're talking about this man's character. And we get a little picture into who he was. Now, instead of spending a whole lot of time on this, explaining it, some of the men, you got that at the men's breakfast that remembered to come. I got this one right here. But, have you ever wondered, Pastor, have you ever wondered, everybody, what it looks like to live out this? It looks familiar, right? 
geared up, filled up, ready to go. That was the previous sermon series. What does that look like? Well, I'm going to quickly go through this because it's right here. Five S's, another way for you to remember this process that one goes through. You're strengthened with the Holy Spirit's power, filled with the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Spirit-filled life. Your next step is you surrender your heart. Jesus Christ can dwell in your heart through faith. He owns your home. He owns your heart. You sign the title over to him. He then begins to live his life through you. That's that supernatural love. You're rooted and grounded in love. You are then filled with all the fullness of God. You are literally saturated with God. When you get through those four steps, and they're all sequential, remember? The last thing happens. God is able to do exceeding abundantly in you, because the work he did in you, now he can work through you to do things beyond your wildest imagination. Beyond anything you can ever ask or imagine. It's according to the power, it says, is at work within you. It's for the purpose, obviously, that God would be glorified. But that's a significant power. Guess who went through that process? Stephen did. So that's a little bit about the man Stephen. Because I read that the significant, great signs and wonders, God was working through Stephen. So he had gone through this process. He was full of faith, full of the Spirit. The word fullness there, it always refers to control. He was controlled by the Spirit, meaning he had signed over the title of his heart, his life, completely to Jesus Christ. He was a living sacrifice, offered himself every day, but he stayed on the cross. He stayed dead, and God was able to work through him. He could say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's the only way that the great things that God was able to do was through him. Now, there's a, a verse that I want to go to. I'm going to take a moment here and talk about the blessed church. Because there's a shift in the, the writing after this, so we don't necessarily talk about the church as much as we talk about the gospel going out in the rest of Acts by, through Paul to the Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. But at verse 7, we see this, and we've seen it in the previous chapters as well, but it says, The word of God continued to increase. Do you see that? And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. But once again, we're seeing God blessing this church. Thus I call it the blessed church. There is no strategy. There were no church growth models. What were they doing? Well, they were doing a lot of things, right? And we're going to get to that in a moment here. But I want you to see, watch this pattern that I discovered as I'm going to take you through real quickly, Acts chapter, up to chapter 6. Uh, and, and see if you notice some patterns here. This is what we find. They're first of all empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's mentioned throughout the first six chapters. They were constantly filled or full of the Holy Spirit. The next thing it says is that they were committed. I mean, there was total involvement. 
They were devoted to biblical teaching, to prayer, and to fellowship. And by fellowship, I mean it was a shared life. We read that they ate meals together. They went and prayed typically three times a day because it was the Jewish custom. They would go to the temple and worship. They would go to synagogues and worship and, and listen to the word of God. They shared meals together from house to house. So it was a shared life. You follow me so far? There was a total involvement. Signs and wonders accompanied that. They were very, very generous. They were unified in purpose. And of course, as was mentioned, they were also bold in their evangelism. I could stop right there and say, how are we doing as a church based upon that criteria? There may be some areas that we're good at, other areas that we're not so good at. But here we have laid out for us a a church that God can bless, and he's blessing. You with me so far? So again, we also see growth. That's the part of the blessing. If you, I've heard churches where they changed the name of their church and they grew by 400 people by the end of the following year. Or they switched from Sunday school to small groups and they grew by 300 people. And therefore a book comes out that if you do a small group, your church will grow. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't work that way. Yet God maybe called them to do that and they responded in, in obedience, and God blessed that obedience, who causes a church to grow? God does. There is no set formula other than what the Bible teaches. And we, I'm trying to get us to see, as I'm learning here, these things are kind of what we're seeing here, and there's growth. Followed again by signs and wonders. This is chapter 3, the healing of the lame beggar. There is an attack by Satan, the persecution. Followed by Growth. So we see that persecution does what to the church? It makes the church grow. They're, despite the persecution, they're still what? Bold in their evangelism. Again, we see they're unified. This is mentioned again. They're generous. Again, another attack by Satan, Ananias and Sapphira. They confront this sin. They don't tolerate it. They practice church discipline. More signs and wonders follow. Another attack by Satan. More signs and wonders. They're freed by an angel of the Lord and told to, to run away and hide, right? No. Go back to the course. Go back to the temple. Start sharing your faith again. They do. They're bold in their evangelism. They're attacked by Satan again. We just read this. And this time they get organized for service. Do you see a pattern there? Look at it again. Luke is telling us that the early church was, and it should be for us as well, these things, these characteristics should be a part of the church. Again, it's, it's, it's just the same pattern over the first five chapters, six chapters. And so what we what Satan does is we say, and, and we, we legitimize this, by the way, these things don't happen anymore. Because they, they died with the apostles. So we don't even go there anymore. So the healings and all that stuff, it's not there. 
The prophecies, it, 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 it's done. So what power is left for that the churches that believe that? There's none. Other than they preach the gospel and they teach. That's about it. Okay? You know, how much do the, does the average Christian give? If the tithe is 10%, you know, again, the, the statistic is, of your income, what you give, is 2%. What were they giving? Everything. Um, we thought about, you, how many denominations are there? <laughs> it's a pretty sad picture, isn't it? So you get that. You, uh, when's the last time someone other than a Mormon knocked on your door to share the gospel with you? And that's a cult. <laughs> it's not a Christian church. So when's the last time you even just shared your faith with somebody? And so a lot of these churches aren't growing. Well, gee, I wonder why. I mean, the level of commitment, by the way, and they were devoted to what? Sound doctrine and teaching. They were devoted to praying and just sharing life together. You know, I said this in yesterday morning. I said, let's do our study. We did it. And I said, well, let's get some food now, man. But let's just talk about what we, the Bible and what we talked about. I don't want you to go off and talk about something else. That's not fellowship. That's socializing. And so we've got that, we blurred that line. Okay? This is fellowship right now. If you talk about the sermon afterwards, that's fellowship. If you go off and talk about something else, then you're really just socializing. But this is what they were doing. Their lives were... And the reason why all this happened is because they had the Holy Spirit. They were empowered by Him. Meaning they were controlled by Him. And oh, by the way, you don't need to do that. I mean, here's what we'll do. We will put that in our doctrine statement that you are to be powered by the Holy Spirit. But that is as far as it goes. We'll be open to the Spirit, but very cautious. And you see why the enemy does that. I mean, look at this. This is tremendous what's going on here. Okay? The other thing I want you to notice is if you are a blessed church, what will happen? You're going to be attacked. So that's not a bad thing, unless it's from your own personal sin. You're attacked because why? You're a threat to him. And he, I mean, Satan is concerned. So he keeps attacking the church. So I would say, looking at all these, I would summarize all these points here in this chapter. This is kind of what we see. This is what makes up a blessed church according to the first six chapters of Acts. They're spirit-filled. Okay, They don't just give lip service to it. They kind of do what I'm doing with you guys. Come, be empowered, be filled. Don't get scared off by tongues if that happens, all right? By the way, you know the biggest lie about tongues? I have heard this a lot is that tongues divides the church. As someone that speaks in tongues, it divides the church. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever heard that before, yes or no? Okay. Well, if you have, know that the person who said that is stupid. Okay? And I say it kind of in a joking way, but I mean because every spiritual gift, right now, 
God is working through me in my teaching gift. This is, through me, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, because that's what each spiritual gift is. It's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So to say that any gift, any spiritual gift, is divisive is, in essence, to say, who is divisive? The Holy Spirit. And I would argue that the gift of teaching has been far more divisive in the history of the church than the gift of tongues. And I could back it up with evidence. Now, I'm not arguing for everybody to speak in tongues, okay? I'm saying, though, that if you're going to be a spirit-filled church, that can't happen because it's all throughout the New Testament. And it's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So don't get freaked out by it if it happens. But they were devoted. I went over that. There was a bold witness. There were signs and wonders. They were generous, unified, attacked by Satan. They were holy. This is the other thing that I see in my experience and I hear that churches simply refuse to do. Is they will tolerate sin, but they refuse to deal with sin. They will not excommunicate or kick out a believer who's in sin and is corrupting the church. I will never forget visiting a church where they was a huge church and a lady that was in adultery and was confronted and would not repent. And the pastor was here and he had a long line of elders on both sides and they read through everything and at the very end they, they, they mentioned this lady in her name but they wanted to protect her but they went through the whole process that they went through with her and turned her over to Satan in hopes that she would Come back, exactly like Paul said you are to do. Now, why in the world, in my 50 years of existence, I have only seen that happen once? Are you telling me that that's the only time that a sin, that someone's committed adultery, and a person's refused to repent of it, that it's the only time it's happened in my 50 years of all the churches that I have visited or been a part of? Of course not. The only other logical explanation is what? They're tolerating it. And yet God himself took the life of Ananias and Sapphira. But they, they, we tolerate way too much sin in the church. And then they're organized, you know, this is Acts chapter 6, they're organized for service. So we see these are some of the characteristics of a church that God blesses. Are you with me so far? Okay, let's talk about the accusation now. Because this is going to set up next week's sermon. In Acts 1.8, we went over this verse, okay? It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what is happening, okay? I want everyone to know, and this is cool, and hopefully we feel a little bad about this as well, but turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 28. Again, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Acts 5.28 says this. This is the, the religious leadership speaking. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, and look what happened. And by this is in a period of months, by the way, not years, months. They filled Jerusalem with this teaching. So it wasn't just the twelve sharing their faith. We now know it was others. They were sharing their faith so that the hundreds of thousands of people, that's more than we have in Auburn, folks, 
were aware of the gospel. They had filled Jerusalem with this teaching. God knew, though, it was time for his church to move out. And Stephen was going to be the key. Stephen is the transition between the evangelization of Jerusalem and the evangelization or the witnessing of the rest of the world. And obviously, we read in Acts chapter 6, he busied himself communicating the gospel to foreign Jews by going to their synagogues, as verse 9 indicates. From the synagogue of the freedmen, you see all that? Now, by the time of Christ, in the New Testament, historians say that there were about 480 synagogues in Jerusalem. The temple was there, built by Herod, but there were these 480 little individual synagogues. Now, there were places where Jewish communities assembled to read the scripture and worship. And the reason for such a high number of synagogues is that the Jews, quite frankly, couldn't get along with each other. It's not just a church problem, by the way. If you disagree with a synagogue you were attending, you would visit another synagogue. Or you'd start your own. Does that sound familiar? So this problem is not just limited to your church or to the church. So it only took ten adults to constitute a congregation for a synagogue. And so so many synagogues were foreign-speaking synagogues. They were kept or maintained in the city of Jerusalem for the foreign Jews who came in for the required feasts. Okay, from their pilgrimages. So it'd be a synagogue for the for the Libertines, for the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and so on. And Stephen obviously went to those synagogues. And after reasoning at the synagogue with the Jews, who were foreign Jews, by the way, they were scattered Jews, he would then move on to the next synagogue. And so clearly, what was his ministry? What was he called to do? Minister to the foreign Jews. Now, Stephen was the first Christian martyr, but before the death of Stephen, the opposition of the Jews had been limited to threats of imprisonment, verbal abuse, and finally to imprisonment and beating. But now we see it just burst forth with a raging kind of madness, and it results in the execution of Stephen by stoning. And we'll get to that next week. But the tension between the church and and Judaism is rapidly reaching the point of fury that it's only going to be satisfied with blood. I mean, this is how bold the early church was in their evangelism. And so Luke introduces the author of Acts first in a series of persecutions that have plagued the church throughout its history. People dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's another reminder that I think we need to, to not forget. I want to bring this to your attention. Is that, again, Satan tried to attack the church using three strategies. Persecution from outside the church, individual sin within the church, and now dissension from within the church. But each time he was defeated. So now he goes back to his first strategy. Persecution. And who would Satan use to persecute Stephen? Well, they're identified for us. First, it says the synagogue of the uh, freedmen. Now, what is that? Well, Pompey, the Roman general, had carried off large numbers of Jews as prisoners to Rome in 63 B.C. He sold them as slaves. 
most of them eventually found their freedom, and they came back to their land. And very likely, the synagogue of the freedmen is a synagogue that basically was developed by freed Roman slaves who returned to their own city to worship. They're also mentioned Cyrenians, which is a city in Africa in the area of Libya. They had a large Jewish colony there. They also participated in a synagogue in Jerusalem. Then Alexandrians, the capital of Egypt, founded by Alexander the Great, they had a huge Jewish community there, and a great library of many Jewish scholars were there. Cilicia is mentioned. It's a district in the settlement known as Asia Minor near Syria, where another large Jewish colony existed. By the way, the principal city of Cilicia and that Jewish colony was Tarsus. Does sound familiar to you guys? Do you know your Bible? Who was from Tarsus? Saul, who became Paul. Exactly. Then there were the Jews from Asia, meaning the western part of Asia Minor. And their chief city was Ephesus. Now, if you look at the text in Acts chapter 6 and the accusations, we can arrive at the conclusion that it was a debate between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Do you understand what I mean by that? Stephen was arguing against the Judaistic misinterpretation of the law of Moses while arguing for the deity of Jesus Christ. You follow me? So by dismissing the saving power of the law of Moses, he was seen as blaspheming Moses. By identifying Jesus as God, he was blaspheming God in their minds. Now, he would have known this. Yet, one who was filled with the Spirit doesn't take that into account, do they? Because the only way you are to share your faith, as the Greek word tells us, is to do it boldly. So when you share your faith, do it boldly. When you proclaim Jesus Christ, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to Father through sin, is that wrong? No. Is it offensive? Yes. Does it mean it shouldn't be shared? Absolutely not. It's for the sake of that lost person. Hopefully you can offend them into heaven. Because if they don't get to heaven, when they die, they will immediately start the process of beginning to pay the penalty for their sins in hell. All of a sudden, you're offending them by that exclusive truth claim. That won't seem so bad. Now, Stephen won this debate. And they weren't arguing, like throwing stuff at each other and raising their voices. This is just what they did at the time. They debated, they argued. But he won the debate, the text says, because of his unparalleled wisdom and because the Spirit was upon him. Look at verses 10 through 14 in Acts chapter 6. It says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that, th- that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So Stephen was charged with four kinds of blasphemy. He'd been charged with blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against the law, 
and blasphemy against the temple. Those were the most sacred things in the mind of a Jew. But again, don't skip over Satan's schemes. You have to know his schemes, his strategies. What does he do to persecute Stephen? He uses the tools that are available to him. And what tools are they? Lies and false witnesses. And in other words, he's going to use his children. Now, Jesus said to remember this. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, watch. Notice Satan's pattern. This is from Matthew 26, 59 through 61. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Does that sound familiar? False testimony? False witnesses? But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Meaning they lied. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Same lies, same strategy by Satan. Now, Stephen had not blasphemed any of them. He had no shown that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all those things that the law and Moses and the temple had looked forward to. But they intentionally distorted it with their lies. Satan's children using Satan's schemes. That's the accusation. And you can see it again right there. In the black, that's what he was accused of. Now you need to remember that, okay? Because that's next week's sermon and how we'll go through Stephen's sermon, his defense. Remember, he blasphemed Moses, God, the temple, the holy place, and the law. Okay? Let's talk about the glory of God. We're going to close with this because this is really kind of neat. It's where you've got to do your real study to understand what's going on here. Look at verse 15. It's a little odd verse. It seems out of place, but there's a reason why it's there. All this is going on says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does that mean? Well, Stephen had, you ready for this? Radiating from his face, the glory of God. That's what that means. It says, if you are insulted, did I put this verse up here? Yeah. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, Peter says, what does it say here? You're blessed. Why? The spirit of glory and of God, what? It rests upon you. And this is exactly what's happening to Stephen. And God's glory is upon him and it's reflecting, radiating through his, what? His face. Now, for those of you that know your Bible, you went to Sunday school. Only one other man in the history of the world ever had the glory of God in his face. Who was it? Moses. Exactly. Remember Exodus 34:29. He goes up to the mountain Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain... Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. 
do you understand what's going on here? Let me explain it to you if you're not connecting the dots. God had put Steve, on Stephen the face of the glory of God. This was a rebuke to the religious leadership of the false religious of Judaism. God was in essence saying, only one other man looked like this, Moses. By the way, what they, they say, accuse him of, blaspheming Moses. God's saying, I made Moses look like this because I approved of the Old Covenant. Now, when I say Old Covenant, I mean that it's the Ten Commandments. You would follow the Ten Commandments. You would try and earn God's favor through obeying the Ten Commandments. But the law was never really intended for that purpose. Galatians tells us that the law was a tutor. You try and obey the law, you fall short, you recognize your sin, and you realize, I have a need for a Savior. I cannot earn God's favor myself. But at that time, God says, this is how I'm going to work. It's an old covenant. I approve of it, and the sign of my approval is my glory rests upon Moses and his face radiates. And God's saying, now I make Stephen look like this, because I approve of what now? The new covenant. Now what's the new covenant? It's no longer works. It's what? Faith. Grace. Exactly. So just, God's saying, just as I approved of Moses, I approve of Stephen, whom you are persecuting and rejecting. In fact, the glory was so great that who saw it? Everyone saw it. And this fits exactly, I think this is so neat, what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. I don't know if you knew this or not. It says, now if the ministry of death, what's that referred to? Well, it says it's carved in letters on stone. What's that referring to? The old covenant, the law, all of that. If it came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory... And that covenant was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So I think that Stephen's face was probably glowing in an even greater way than Moses' face ever did. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, then the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. The old covenant is, is dead. God's doing a new work because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And so I had to take you through all of this to set up chapter 7, which is his response to those four accusations. And you know the story goes, they kill him, becomes the first Christian martyr, but it's not shocking because they killed the Savior as well. Now, unlike Peter, we'll close with this. There is no mention of anyone believing in Jesus Christ because of Stephen's ministry. Stephen preached the gospel. What happened? 3,000 came to Christ. He keeps seeing and preaching. Apostles preaching. People being added to their numbers. Okay. But Stephen is, is great proof. That the effect of a man's life has nothing to do with the length of it. And the effect of a man's ministry has nothing to do with the length of it. His ministry was a few months. 
It was very, very short. And yet it was the catalyst that caused the church to move out in the next step in its commission to reach Judea, Samaria, in the world with the gospel. You and I are here in part because of Stephen. Now, I don't think that anybody can fully estimate the results, even of a brief work or ministry, but when that one man, like Stephen, has the courage to do and to say what he knows is right, you're going to see next week, this man does not back down, and he throws smack back in their faces, and I love it. Because I get tired of the passivity I see so much in leadership, including the church. But I don't think we can fully estimate the results of a brief work. When you know have the courage to say what is right, you know what's right, and you say it, whatever the consequences. Some of you may have heard of the missionary William Carey, a British Christian missionary. You know, he spent 30 to 35 years laboring in the mission field without ever seeing a single soul come to Christ. And yet, since that time, all the missions of India have been based upon the work of William Carey that he did in terms of translating the Bible. And so, you know, I struggle kind of with the application point, but the Lord just kind of gave it to me this morning, and this is what I want you to ask yourself this week. How is God using you? How is God using me to take the gospel to the lost? I mean, you know what it requires. Full of the Spirit, full of grace, full of faith, full of wisdom, all of that. I've taken you through this concept in the previous sermon series. All those S's. That's what God wants to do in you. So that he can, through you, do something like he did with Stephen. Let God write the 29th chapter of Acts through your life. Let's pray. Any worship team, you can come on up. We'll close with a song. Heavenly Father, it is good to open your word, the scriptures, and I hope, by faith, believe that you spoke through me to build up this church. And I pray that we would be bold in our witnessing. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.